0: Hey, y'all. Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes. Check us out on Stitcher. We're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh?
1: I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too serene, Will. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got. Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who
0: the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies Think about big men in tights. Roll that motherfucking camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, Retro Spectating 1999: Three Kings and the Limey. Matt, this is a this is a pretty exciting one. This is a, hits close to home, especially for you. You're Soderbergh, David O. Russell. I mean, what 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 else can you ask for? I mean,
1: I think we're gonna draw. Obviously, some comparisons to these two filmmakers, both of whom sort of like came of age in the 90s. But uh, in addition to the fact that both of these movies came out in October of 99, I also believe these are the best films of these two filmmakers. I'll just go out and uh, plant my flag there. I, I think that I think that David O. Russell made his two best films back to back, Three Kings and then I Heart Huckabees. I know that's probably a bit of a um, controversial opinion, given that he still had The Fighter and Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, later in his career and then I feel that you know this is kind of like the Rosetta Stone for Soderbergh's style and you know I made it obviously right between Out of Sight which was kind of a breakthrough film for him and then Aaron Brockovich and Traffic which both came in you know the basically the biggest year of his career when he made history won his Oscar right before making Ocean's Eleven which would become his biggest hit so anyway I I think these two films are extremely significant in the careers of these two Uh, important Children of the Sundance era.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly uh, Soderbergh's breakthrough, for sure. I mean, that came kind of a year earlier. Uh, strong out of the gate with Sex, Lies, Videotape, but until Out of Sight came, he didn't really have a commercial hit. I mean, th- this is what happened starting with Out of Sight. Out of Sight, The Limey, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, and Ocean's Eleven in very quick succession. could be hard to find a better, more sort of interesting, mid-career quintuplet than that. It, it
1: took him basically almost a decade to sort of become the filmmaker he was always Meant to be, you know, like *Sex Lies and Videotape* changed everything. Basically, inaugurated American independent film movement of the 1990s, and I think that the art form was all the better for it. But he made that movie when he was what 25, something like that. He became the youngest person ever to win uh, the Palm d'Or at Cannes, and I think it all just happened much too quickly before he had really figured out what kind of filmmaker he wanted to be. Luckily, he was able to still find financing based on the strength of *Sex Lies and Videotape*, so that he worked steadily throughout the 90s. But if you look look at that Slate, you know, Sex lives videotape, Kafka, King of the Hill, Grey's Anatomy, Schizopolis, The Underneath, all pretty deeply flawed films. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Grey's Anatomy and Schizopolis, but it's pretty hard to convince your friends to watch those movies on a Saturday night, you know? <laughs> like, there's something very arch and kind of artsy about them, and, and a little too artsy for their own good.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're a student of Soderbergh, like, hasn't he been on record sort of saying he was a bit lost in that era?
1: 100%, yeah. I mean, he even he thinks that something like Schizopolis is incredibly indulgent, although, you know, that movie and Grey's Anatomy for that matter, both part of the Criterion Collection. Clearly time has been kind to them. I'm I'm very proud to say that I was on board with them from the very first time I saw them in college you know famously Harvey Weinstein offered to buy Schizopolis having not even seen it just based on the fact that they had a relationship going back Sex, Lies, a Videotape and Soderbergh talked him out of it and said trust me you don't want this movie you're going to lose money on it I did this as an experiment I paid for it myself this movie is not going to make any money you, you don't want to go down this road and Weinstein finally saw it and thanked Soderbergh for talking him out of it because clearly there's no money to be made on that movie but anybody who cares about Soderbergh and his legacy obviously needs to check it out because it stars him in multiple roles, and it is obviously probably the most psychologically in-depth microscope into the man's mind. The Limey is creatively his most effective film. Schizopolis, I'd say, is for a number of reasons his most personal. And I believe it's the last film he made before Out of Sight. I want to say Schizopolis was 96, 97, and then um, basically Stacy Shear and Danny DeVito and all, all those cats talk him into doing Out of Sight in 98, which was something he didn't actually want to do, but he realized he was at his, a point in his career where if he didn't make Something that was commercially successful, he may just potentially be in director's jail indefinitely.
0: Maybe we'll do a series at some point on Soderbergh because he's definitely one of the most interesting guys who's ever uh, or auteurs who's ever been in the film industry. Just with all the different phases of his career and his experimentation, and you know, his he's his own DP. He said, you know, what ten years ago that he was done making films, and immediately reneged on that.
1: I would even potentially push back on the idea of calling him an auteur. I don't even think he thinks of himself as an auteur. He certainly has a style and his fingerprints are all over all of his films, but he thinks of himself as a journeyman. You know, his hero is John Houston, who is basically a guy who would work in any genre. I, I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast last year or earlier this year, actually, when they were and they were talking about um, High Flying Bird. And Soderbergh said a, a breakthrough for him on Out of Sight was when he realized that he's not actually a writer director, that he's a director and that working with Scott Frank's brilliant screenplay for that movie completely realigned the way he looked at his filmmaking style and with the exception of, you know, outliers like Solaris, which is flawed but I think fascinating, he he doesn't really write and direct anymore. He is a director for hire.
0: Lem Lem Dobbs might have something to say about that, <laughs> and certainly did have something to say about that.
1: I'm glad you I'm glad you're familiar with the Lem Dobbs Soderbergh relationship. You obviously listened to the infamous commentary track on the Limey DVD in college, right? Insofar as commentary tracks can be infamous, do yourself a favor friends, if, if you want to go find yourself a torrent or some sort of mp3 file online, or even just order, if you just want to go into Amazon and order the Limey DVD for $5 or whatever it's retail, retailing for, rustle that up because it is it is just one of the all-time great commentary tracks. It gets legitimately uncomfortable. I mean, it is an hour's worth of that commentary is an argument between these two artists about whether or not Soderbergh did the right thing in terms of how he chose to Interpret Dobbs's screenplay.
0: Yeah, and you know it's it's looking the argument's looking worse and worse for Dobbs these days as the uh, (laughs) co-writer of uh, Gaudy last year, I believe. It sounds like we're going to start with the limey.
1: We might as well. I mean, that's technically backwards uh, chronologically, but whatever. We, we're already we're already going down this road. Let's do it.
0: You say this is Soderbergh's best movie. I'm I'm not sure if I'm willing to go that far. It does feel like the most Soderbergian movie, in as much as you can say something like that. Like it, it it does feel like his fingerprints are all over this movie. And part of that is because he's interpreting what, in essence, is a pretty darn. Simple script, right? Like, I mean, as much as an as a filmmaker can have an effect on the written material, uh, Soderbergh really gives it his all here and, and makes it his own, right?
1: I, I was sort of stewing on this concept this afternoon when I was think when I was putting my notes together for today's episode, and I, I was thinking to myself that Soderbergh might be one of the all-time great examples of how style over substance doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing.
0: How style is substance, you
1: know? Style can be the substance. Now, you have to be uh, as talented stylistically as somebody like Soderbergh in order to make it the substance. But I think he's one of the few artists wherein it really doesn't matter what he's making the film about. His style, his approach, and his sort of like unique sensibilities are the selling point. And I think despite the fact that his movies don't tend to be financially successful especially recently with few exceptions, I do think he still is a marquee name and a certain portion of the cinephilic community seek seek out his films and will be completists. Like I just went to go see The Laundromat over the weekend, uh not one of his best, and I'd say maybe even a, a bad movie. I, I gotta give I gotta give it a little bit more thought before I pass judgment on it. But my first instinct was, yeah, that that's that's not a good movie. But he's one of those guys along with, you know, maybe, you know, Woody Allen, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, where I'm just a completist and I will follow them anywhere, regardless of the fact that they have just as many downs as they do ups.
0: So I mean, going back to like the limey as a story. So this movie is just about a career criminal has a daughter who has died under mysterious circumstances, and he flies to the US to seek revenge. And that's it. Simple story, right? And the style we're talking about here is overlapping dialogue, editing, that's sort of uh, atypical, I suppose, of of what you'd expect. I mean, how would you explain the exact style of what's going on here?
1: Part of the reason that I think The Limey is Soderbergh's best film and Part of the reason I think it is, you know, maybe one of my five favorite films of all time is that I don't think I've ever seen a movie that so perfectly visualizes the idea of memory. I think The Limey is the ultimate film about recollection. And I wrote about it when I did my thesis project at Columbia in the graduate program. And if you'll indulge me for just a second, I, I can just quickly read you sort of like my, my, you know, my take on the film. I worked for months and months to, you know, to sound as eloquent as possible on the page, so I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, the character of Wilson sits on a plane, rem- remembering the last few days of his own history. Each event on the longitudinal timeline he is retroactively excavating carries with it the baggage of a semiotic memory. Every time he recalls an event, he is drilling down into the corresponding memory. That memory corresponds to further memories that may be existing earlier on the timeline retroactively informing one another, drawing a vector point backward and down. Wilson remembers a conversation he had with Elaine, his daughter's acting coach. In that memory, he tells Elaine a story about how Jenny used to threaten to call the police and inform on her father when he'd do something illegal. Wilson's memory of telling the story is literalized on the top level with visual and auditory representations of he and Elaine. That conversation activates a deeper memory, occurring years ago, which is supplemented with images of adolescent Jenny shaking a telephone over her head in defiance of her father's criminal activity. That memory activates a further reminiscence on Wilson's part, an image of an even younger Jenny standing on a beach, smiling at the camera at Wilson and by extension at us. Each temporal level adopts a new aesthetic, Suggestive color palettes, vertical streaks of light caused by thin shutter angles, dancing orbs of overexposure, etc. To distinguish them from one another. Older memories are hazier, so they become increasingly stylized. Wilson exists in his quote-unquote present on the airplane and remembers telling a story. That activates the context, which in turn activates presumably his deepest, most enduring memory of Jenny when she was young and happy. Memories of his daughter are all that Wilson has left to show for their relationship but eventually even those will disappear. My take on this movie is that the entire thing is a memory. There is nothing that exists in the fabric of the Limey that is happening, quote-unquote, now. It is all existing in Wilson's Reminiscence. The entire film is taking place on the plane, going back from L.A. to London, and it's Wilson remembering the, the, the last week of his life. And in that regard, I feel like it is maybe, you know, cinematically maybe the best representation I've ever seen of what, remembering something feels like inside your head. I think Soderbergh really figured something out here. I think he is the best filmmaker to ever tackle the idea of memory, and because he sort of like cracked a code with this film, it has become a recurring motif, even in his commercial stuff. You know, even look at at the sequence in uh, Ocean's 12, when Brad Pitt's remembering how, you know, how he met Catherine Zeta-Jones' character and their time together in Rome. Like, nobody does memory better than Soderbergh, in my estimation, and this is the this is the pinnacle of him flexing that muscle.
0: Yeah, and if I recall correctly, he he used this a bit in Out of Sight, too, these sort of techniques, and, and a lot of it was with uh, flashbacks, right?
1: The most famous scene in Out of Sight, the scene that every single editing class I've ever taken, the scene is referenced and screened and we always talk about it, is the Detroit hotel bar sequence, right? right? Yes, yes. You know, it's just, it's like the time is a flat circle idea. Everything is actually happening all at once. They're sitting at the bar together, but they're also simultaneously up in the room together, but they're also reaching across to touch fingers on the side of a glass of bourbon, you know, it, it's all happening at once. And it's just up to the filmmakers to figure out how to weave it together in a poetic way. Ultimately, when you're in the editing room, you just kind of find, you know, you're finding a rhythm that you can't really express on the page. And so with all due respect to Lem Dobbs and Scott Frank, this this really is the kind of stuff that gets created, you know, in the case of Out of Sight, it's Soderbergh and the great Anne V. Coates. In The Limey, it's Soderbergh and Sarah Flack, who, interestingly enough, was a production assistant on Soderbergh's second feature, Kafka. And so they maintained a relationship. She and Soderbergh collaborated on this in Full Frontal. She became Sofia Coppola's editor, did Lost in Translation, and and so on. But uh, but yes, I think you're right. I think he like he kind of discovers something without of sight and then he kind of perfects it with the limey.
0: Yeah, and circling back around, I mean this is this is style not for style's sake. This is style in the service of the story and making the story itself more effective. I mean, in in a in a in a lesser filmmaker's hands, this is just sort of a very straightforward crime caper revenge flick that's, you know, sort of maybe lesser Tarantino or something, right? It turns into this kind of sexy fever dream of a of a la experience with uh terrence stamp just being uh spectacularly terrence stamp
1: big year for stamp starts with phantom menace then does bowfinger and then does the limey which became one of the more you know iconic characters in his oeuvre uh
0: well i mean it should be the maybe the most iconic character i mean i i was not terribly familiar with Terrence Stamp before 1999, I can I can admit. Yeah, me neither. Were you big into this movie when it came out? I, I don't think I saw it in the theater, and I, I'm pretty sure I didn't see it till college.
1: Definitely saw it before Aaron Brockovich. You know, I probably saw it on DVD or maybe even VHS in early 2000s. So I probably, I, I would have seen Out of Sight, I'd obviously seen uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape Soderbergh was on my radar, and I knew he was an important guy. I hadn't seen the obscure stuff by this point. I certainly hadn't seen Schizopolis or anything like that, but Out of Sight was a big deal. I didn't see Out of Sight in theater, but I remember watching it Many times on video, you know, or high school parties, whatever, and I was like, "Wow, there's something really interesting going on here. This is this is special. There's something special about this. I can't divine it just yet because I'm not old enough or sophisticated enough, but I knew there was something special about it. So when the limey comes along, I wouldn't say it was a big hit coming out of Cannes, but a lot of people who who saw it at the Cannes Film Festival respected it and wrote about it and said it was very unique. So I think I just rented it on a whim and it kind of blew my mind. And so then when Aaron Brockovich comes along and he's 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 doing, you know, he's working with a lot of the same tools but in a much more kind of like mainstream studio filmmaking context. Boy, wow, he can really play both sides of the street. And then of course Traffic comes along and I saw that opening weekend. At that point in my life whatever I was, you know, 17, 18 years old, I was like this is this is the guy. This is my guy. Like this is he's I, I you know, I I felt it without of sight. It was confirmed for me with the Limey Traffic just absolutely, you know, cemented it for me. Like, this is this is the guy I will follow. Like, this is this is a guy I'm going to champion all through college. Out of sight, Limey, Traffic, like, all right, here we go. Off to the races.
0: Yeah, I was big into out of sight. I saw it multiple times in the theater. I, oh, I wow. absolutely adored it. And Soderbergh was on my radar. But for whatever reason, like, the Limey kind of came and went in theaters and didn't get a lot of press and didn't make, I think it made, what, $3 million on a $10 million budget?
1: Absolute flop. Yeah, total flop.
0: I'm not even sure it opened that in that many uh, theaters. It's it's interesting to consider that the whatever studio was it was it Miramax.
1: I want to say it was Artisan. It was like one of those tiny little mini majors. You know, the, I think it was Artisan who also released uh, Requiem for a Dream the next year.
0: For whatever reason, they didn't have much faith that it. Was going to make money. Didn't get a ton of press. Obviously, he had great reviews and. Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda.
1: You know, they're both legends, but uh, you know those guys can't really open. You know, they're in their 70s. I don't know if they can necessarily open a movie.
0: Oh come on, Peter Fonda.
1: <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, he, he's he's a legendary figure, and the fact that we have British legend and an American legend who both sort of came to prominence in the 60s and are both sort of associated with counterculture on opposite sides of the Atlantic that makes for a nice fun rivalry there at the center of the film.
0: Do you think Steve was Sp- so? Soderbergh read the script and was like, that is absolutely Terrence Stamp and that is absolutely Peter Fonda. They seem so unbelievably perfect for these roles, especially Peter Fonda, man. Like that is, I smile every time he's on screen. Just he's, he's such a fucking delight. Uh,
1: Yeah. Rest in peace. We just lost him uh, a couple weeks ago, actually. Yeah. I mean, according to Lem Dobbs, this film or this story, this, the, the script was always meant to be a reflection. It was, it was always meant to be a bit of a, um, a bit of a treatise. On the 60s and the lingering sort of specter of the 1960s. So whether or not he would have suggested actors like Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda during the casting process, I'm, I'm, I really don't have any information about that. It does seem so perfect that I I can't imagine anybody else in these two roles.
0: You consider this basically a perfect movie. You say it's in your top five of all time. Part of that has to be the expedience which with this uh, story goes by. It's a, It's a really extremely tight 90 minutes there's no fat on it 89 minutes actually
1: it's sub 90 minutes
0: that ends up in a really breezy watch do you want to hear my one one nit to pick with this movie man
1: all right go for it break my heart
0: i i find the final shootout a little unsatisfying
1: i get that and i wouldn't push back against it my only thing is that i i think it's actually sort of intentionally supposed to be kind of bland and not particularly exciting
0: anticlimactic yeah
1: yeah, it, 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 I'm reminded watching it of the uh, scuffle between Don Cheadle and um, George Clooney in um, Albert Brooks' mansion at the end of Out of Sight. And how just kind of like messy and silly. And there's like scuffling around. There's kind of kicking each other. And neither of them really knows what they're doing. And it's just, I think Soderbergh really, re- I, don't, I, I don't think... He- he would fancy himself an action director, although you could look at something like Haywire and you could see him trying to find a bit of a new new gear as, as an action filmmaker, but actually also written by Lem Dobbs, interestingly enough. But I think he kind of likes the messiness of it. I don't think he fancies himself somebody who makes exciting or sexy action sequences. I think he likes action sequences. They're a little bit grungy. I mean, there's a, there's there's one shot where one of the bodyguards who's supposed to be protecting Peter Fonda gets shot in the back and he kind of just like falls to his knees and he's a little overweight and his paunch kind of comes out from underneath his shirt and he just sort of like collapses under it. Just something very silly and flabby. It's just, I I, I agree with you that it is not a particularly exciting shootout, but I think that's kind of the point or maybe that's just me justifying.
0: That's fine, I understand that, but but also just the scenario is a little happenstance-y. It's, it's all a little too easy for, for our guy Terrence Stamp with everyone accidentally shooting each other, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, they've Lem Dobbs has crafted this interesting scenario wherein we now have guys who have turned, you know, you have Nikki Cat and Joe D'Alessandro who have now turned against Barry Newman, who's uh, Peter Fonda's bag man. And so you basically have bad guys coming after the bad guys, and because they're fighting amongst one another, that gives Stamp and ab- the ability to like slide in there and go right after Peter Fonda, right? So I feel like you've got all these kind of like low life dudes who are all coming together, you know, congregating at this big Sur location, and they don't really know what they're doing, and they don't know what they're shooting at, and everything is kind of dark, and some of these guys are kind of old and out of shape, and so they're fighting amongst themselves. It's all very kind of like messy and silly, and then. Peter Fonda or I'm sorry, Terrence Stamp just slides in like the angel of death and stalks Peter Fonda to the to the beach. And I just find that 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 sequence on the beach at the end where Fonda's basically begging for his life, I just find it to be so incredibly moving and and so sad. I think Terrence Stamp's realization just lands in a very unexpected and melancholy way. I just I think the ending of this movie is so sad and kind of revelatory at the same time.
0: Yeah, I think the endings quite great i even love the little conversation at the end terrence stamp has with his uh seatmate you know besides that little nitpick i think the rest of the movie is more or less pitch perfect uh you know there are so many standout scenes and whether it's Terrence Stamp, just with uh, with the acting coach, all that stuff is fantastic. The entire party scene is absolutely fantastic. What many people would would say the most iconic scene is the the warehouse shootout. Everything else is absolutely uh, terrific. I, I love this movie. I've seen it a number of times. Uh, you know, since I discovered it, I don't know what are your favorite scenes, Matt.
1: You know, you brought up the conversation with Elaine, played by Leslie Ann Warren. That's the scene that I was um, referencing during my my earlier essay blurb. There, i mean, I mean I, I feel like that is this that's the Rosetta Stone scene that teaches you how to read the movie it's them having the exact same conversation in three different locations which makes absolutely no sense realistically right you wouldn't you wouldn't start a conversation in a diner continue the conversation while you're walking through Marina del Rey and then finish the conversation in an apartment the experience they're having together they're basically on a date and presume it's lasting maybe three plus hours he's bringing something up in the diner and then he's concluding the thought theoretically hours later in the apartment. And so that's what kind of reinforces for me the fact that this is meant to be interpreted as reminiscence, not as reality. To me, that's just always the scene I go back to in terms of like, what, when does this movie really sort of figure out exactly how it wants to tell this story? And for me, it's, it's that particular sequence because it's all about him talking about Jenny, you know, realizing how much he loves her, how much he's going to miss her. She wanted him to be a better person. She wanted him to be a better man. She wanted him to not be a criminal, and he, he let her down. And so it, it, it just reinforces the melancholy for me. The, the scene in the hills at the party is fantastic. That's really when, when Guzman shines. Like Louis Guzman, who's obviously part of the Soderbergh repertory group, Part of the P.T. Anderson reper- repertory group as well. He would go on to play himself in Magnolia a couple months later which I'm looking forward to talking about with you in December. Everything between he and Stamp is just absolute gold. And then everything with Nikki Cat and Joe DeAlessandro when they're at the film shoot. Nikki Cat is just one of the all-time great unsung dirtbags, right? Like he who plays a better sleaze than Nikki Cat.
0: And he and he is just, he is a charismatic piece of shit in this movie.
1: He is just on fire in this movie and I just I just love every minute of it. But yeah, to me, I mean it, it, this film this is not a film about indi- individual sequences. This is a film about one tone that just extends out for 89 minutes and just never loses steam. And I just I just find it to be so haunting and beautiful and sad and invigorating. There's just nothing like it. I was so obsessed with this movie in college, I used to actually write people's essays because for some reason, this film was something that came up in some of those art of the cinema classes at LMU film school. And so when... Certain students who were taking art of the cinema just to sort of satisfy uh, an elective or something, but didn't want to write the essay, they would come to me and they would trade, you know, booze or money or, you know, like I would basically get paid to write these people's essays and it was never a chore for me because I loved the movie so much. I, I just loved finding different angles on analyzing it. And so I, I probably did that a few, a few different times. So I, this movie is always going to hold a special place in my heart. In that regard and yeah i just i think it's soderbergh's best it's his tightest it's his fastest it's his you know simplest narratively but it's probably his most complex in terms of execution, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I mean, taking something this simple and making it so stylistic and interesting is, uh, yeah, takes a takes a monumental talent. You shared with me an uh, interesting conspiracy theory about the sort of tentacles of this movie before the podcast off air.
1: Yeah, when I was writing the aforementioned uh, thesis essay, I, I was focusing a lot on Soderbergh, but mostly, mostly I was focusing on Nolan. And so, in the essay, I, I divide it by chapters, and there's you know there's the Memento chapter there's the Inception chapter and there's the Dunkirk chapter the entire essay is basically about temporality and temporal experimentation and so the Memento chapter is paired with the Limey because if you look at if you if you look at 1999 chronologically Christopher Nolan was shooting Memento in the fall of 1999 and he claims to have wrapped memento the week of october 8th 1999 which coincidentally is the week that the limey premiered in theaters in la so i have this conspiracy theory whatever you want to call it that he went to go he went and screened the limey you know one of the few theaters was playing at in la and that influenced him in the editing room of memento i have nothing to prove that but then if you look you know you fast you fast forward to a year and a half later when when uh, memento premieres at sundance and then Soderbergh sees it, and he's so impressed by it that he and Clooney basically conscript Nolan. They basically go and handpick him, sell him to Warner Brothers to direct Insomnia. That movie becomes a hit. Warner Brothers becomes enamored with Nolan, and as a result, they offer him. They ask him what he wants to do, and he has a pitch for Batman Begins, and the rest is history. So you can kind of tie Nolan's trajectory to success into his relationship with both Clooney and Soderbergh, even though oddly he's never he's never collaborated with them again. I don't think they had a falling out or anything. But Nolan obviously realized he was his own guy and became sort of a more autonomous entity. So, but yes, I have no I have no proof of this, but I have given it quite a bit of thought.
0: Well, the Clooney stuff gives us a nice segue into Three Kings, man.
1: There's a scene at the end of the Limey. Peter Fonda and Barry Newman are watching Access Hollywood, and it's. Clooney arriving in Venice at the Venice Film Festival, claiming that it's his first time in Italy. Clooney would become so associated with the country of Italy based on his decision to, you know, invest in property there <laughs> that it is, it is sort of strange and, and weird and meta to actually watch him talking about Italy and claiming to be visiting for the very first time. This comes a year after Soderbergh and Clooney's first collaboration. He's still technically in ER, I think, during the production of Three Kings. And apparently he was kind of doing the uh, Michael J. Fox Back to the Future thing, where he was shooting ER like three days a week, and then he was shooting Three Kings like the other four days a week.
0: Yeah, and up till this point, you know, Out of Sight was Clooney's first well-received movie, right? He had done Batman and Robin, he had done The Peacemaker, he had done One Fine Day... You know he hadn't really hit yet and was still falling back on his on his TV startup. It really was out of sight, and then Three Kings that sort of catapulted him well received leading man type stuff.
1: I worked for him briefly. I, I interned at uh, the production company that he and Soderbergh used to co own called Section Eight. It doesn't exist anymore. It has since disbanded. Then Clooney and Grant Haslav spun it into Smokehouse Pictures. But at the time I was working there, he was sitting in the lobby of the production office one time chatting with somebody, and he was mentioning mentioning the fact that One Fine Day was actually his first studio film so uh because i believe that from Dust till dawn was produced independently maybe miramax or dementia picked it up or maybe or maybe one fine day came before from Dust till dawn they both came out in in 96 either way he said one fine day was his first studio film and then yeah it goes straight into batman and robin which he has he considers the biggest mistake of his career and never stops uh flagellating himself about it and then yeah does the peacemaker which is the very first dreamworks film weirdly bad movie with all due respect to Mimi Leader, Peacemaker, bad movie. And then, yeah, Out of Sight, which I don't think anybody really had that much, had particularly big expectations for, right? I mean, it was just a pulpy Elmore Leonard adaptation from a kind of like fallen wunderkind who everybody thought was kind of washed up
0: elmore leonard was having a moment right good shorty was a couple years earlier i don't know what the expectations were what do you know what the budget was for out of sight
1: budget of out of sight 48 million box office 78 so looks successful on paper i'm sure this doesn't take into account marketing and stuff but you know probably probably just about broke even
0: yeah so three kings david o russell i mean had you seen either of his uh, you know, theatrical films before Three Kings, Matt? I had not,
1: but I knew who he was. He was already, uh, not unlike Soderbergh, already kind of a Sundance darling by the time he made Three Kings you know grew up in new york he was voted class rebel in high school whatever that means he he goes to amherst and he gets a political uh, english and political science degree he does outreach work in nicaragua uh, he becomes a community organizer in maine as well as south boston and he works as a political activist uh, he goes to work for PBS for a number of years. And then he makes two short films, both of which get accepted to Sundance. So he's already kind of, he's already got a foot in the door at Sundance. So that by the time he makes Spanking the Monkey in 1994, he has a relationship with the festival. And his short films are both so well received that he receives grants from the New York State Council of the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts to make Spanking the Monkey. Now, when the National Endowment for the Arts finds out what Spanking the Monkey is about, they ask for their money back. <laughs> and and i'm not exactly sure how he managed to bridge the the gap there in terms of the budget but he gets the film made for anyone who hasn't seen it it's this film about an incestuous relationship between uh, mother and son but it's also kind of surprisingly sweet and 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 introspective and it wins the audience award at sundance and he kind of becomes a bit of a of a phenomenon and he wins best first, first feature from the independent spirits And on the strength of that, he gets to make a bigger comedy called Flirting with Disaster with Patricia Arquette, Ben Stiller. T. Leoni, and then a really impressive deep roster at, you know, uh, George Segal and Mary Tyler Moore, Lily Tomlin, Alan Alda.
0: Richard Jenkins, Josh Brolin. Thanks. It's crazy. It is
1: one of the best screwball comedies of the 90s. I had not seen either by the time Three Kings came out, but by this point, I already knew he was a big deal. But the fact that he was able to set up $50 million studio action film based on the strength of these two very low-budget, independent productions was a little bit unprecedented at the time, especially for a guy who we now know is Pretty damn volatile and mercurial on set and rubs a lot of people the wrong way, right?
0: It's weird. I mean, I guess we can talk about that for a sec. You know, the infamous I Heart Huckabees video came out years ago of him just screaming at Lily Tomlin. But that was his second time working with Lily Tomlin. And he's worked with actors on numerous occasions. You know, people do keep coming back. And, you know, recently it's been, you know, Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. So he does, despite his sort of whatever Napoleonic tendencies he has on set, People do seem to enjoy or at least put up with working with them because they they get the results, right?
1: And Lily Tomlin, interviewed relatively recently, has said that she has not only forgiven him for whatever happened on the set of I Heart Huckabees, that she would absolutely work with him again, and she thinks he's brilliant. And she says that what we saw in those YouTube videos was just part of their process. Now, Lily Tomlin, also infamously a person who doesn't suffer fools and is more than happy to get into it, even if it's on set, but it is crazy to think that after all that, that she still has a lot of respect for him, still considers him a friend, would work with him again. Clooney, not quite so much. Clooney says he's, he's very proud of the work that they did in Three Kings and that he does consider David Russell to be extremely talented and, you know, deserving of all the awards and accolades he's gotten over the years, that he wouldn't work with him again, but that they have since sort of like made up and they've gotten older and he, he doesn't, harbor any ill will against the guy
0: yeah i mean i'm pretty ambivalent about this kind of thing because you know and you're more of a veteran of the of the movie set than i am i i do think there's really no place for that kind of behavior you know in in any walk of life whether it's in an office or on a movie set or whatever
1: i completely agree
0: but uh i guess if it works for some people and some people put up with it because they know the finished product's gonna be something you know like more power to him i suppose but uh he, he does he's a super interesting guy and when it comes to Three Kings, it sounds like the studio said they want to work with them and, you know, pick your project. And that's where sort of the whole screenplay controversy for Three Kings was born out of, right? John yeah. John Ridley wrote a screenplay about a heist in the Middle East and David O. Russell saw the... You know, the slug line for it and decided to write his own screenplay based just on the premise. Claims he never read the script or saw anything about it. Some crediting controversy. John Ridley eventually got a story by credit.
1: Yeah, the John Ridley thing is is particularly interesting because um, he ran into controversy during the production of 12 Years a Slave. Famously, he and Steve McQueen had a big falling out over that and had a, and there was a bunch of arbitration in the WGA in terms of like who was going to get credit and then there's that... There's That sort of infamous shot during that Oscar telecast when Ridley wins the Oscar and Steve McQueen is sort of like flippantly, demonstrably uh, pretending to clap for him. So I don't know. Maybe John Ridley is just unlucky enough to have found himself. I think he's a terrifically talented writer, but uh, maybe he's the kind of guy who um, like struggles with the legality of this stuff, or maybe he is the kind of guy who who rubs people the wrong way. I don't know. I just found out during my research that he's a he was a former stand-up comedian, which is interesting given the subject matter of 12 Years a Slave.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be something where, you know, he's pretty obstinate about his scripts and doesn't want them changed. It doesn't doesn't want to do any rewrites or go along with it. So, you know, once once he sells it, it's, you know, the filmmakers want to make changes and they can't rely on him to do it.
1: And apparently the, the whole, the genesis of the script that became Three Kings was John Ridley challenging himself to see how fast he could write something and then sell it and what a great position to be in we were like oh what am i gonna do this week i'm gonna see if i can bank something out really really quickly and see how fast i can sell this to a studio what a great position to be in in your career
0: yeah i mean he wasn't really uh he did what U-turn before that and a movie called cold around the heart which he also directed i don't even i don't know about that movie but
1: yeah i don't recognize either of those names oh i mean i i know u turn of course that's the that's the oliver stone movie yeah with the aforementioned jennifer yeah
0: do you know what his next movie was after three kings he wrote? No, tell me. The Great Hilarious undercover brother
1: of course yes I did know that uh, maybe I maybe I can do a little YouTube research and, and see if I can find some video of John Ridley doing stand-up I would, I would lo- I'd love to know <laughs> I want maybe there's a video of him standing in front of a brick wall with you know the purple suit jacket and a microphone from the late 1980s somewhere
0: I you know I kind of doubt it maybe some VHS footage who knows so three Kings you know I hadn't I hadn't seen spanking the monkey I may or may not have seen flirting with disaster I know I saw that pretty early but I'm not sure if it was because of three Kings or not but I do know that From the beginning, I was into Three Kings. And I definitely saw it in the theater, I think a couple of times. I mean, this 15-year-old me was uh, was definitely going to the movies all summer long. I, I was pretty obsessed with it. Loved it. I remember getting quite a bit of uh, marketing material. I remember seeing the, the, the trailers everywhere, and it just, for whatever reason, struck a chord with me. You know, I've, uh, I've kind of loved it ever since. Did you see it in the theater, Matt?
1: I did at least three times, if memory serves. Like, I was pretty darn obsessed. I, I, think, I feel like it would be a bit of a backhanded compliment to say this movie is kind of pitched at 16-year-old boys. But it's action-packed. It's sort of art-forward. You know, there's sex and violence, but it also has sort of like a political message. So as a 16 year old, it makes you feel like you're kind of in on something, makes you feel like you're smart, like you're getting a little bit of vegetables along with your um, with your action sequences. And uh, yeah, at the time, it felt like a pretty hip movie to like bring up at dinner parties and stuff right like have you have you seen three kings yet you know like it was a little bit more mainstream to talk about you know american beauty or the cider house rules or even the the insider the green mile but it's like three kings was a little hipper it was a little more niche right while still being a studio film
0: and it was also sort of a nice digestif after the one-two punch of saving private ryan and thin red line sure the year before you know if if, it definitely is a different kind of war movie which is you know part of its appeal kind of i don't know pops the balloon a little bit about the seriousness of of war movies i guess right not that this
1: is a super deep category but and not to put you on the spot but is this the best film made about operation desert storm
0: yeah yeah i think it is right i mean what are the other contenders uh yeah, you have Jarhead.
1: Jarhead, yeah, that's probably the first place you go. You got, what's the one with uh, Matt Damon, Denzel Washington, Courage Under Fire? I was about to say The Hurt Locker, but then I realized, no, no, The Hurt Locker is about the second Iraq War. But that war as well, I mean, even if you took all these films together, all the films made about the first Iraq War and all the films made about the second Iraq War, it's still a pretty, it, it's still hard to find too much quality in that category, right? For whatever reason, this war doesn't really, or, or these kinds of wars in this part of the world don't really lend themselves to great films. Three Kings is really a bit of an outlier in this in this subject matter.
0: Someone say Zero Dark Thirty, right? But okay. I, I guess that's not really about. The gu- yeah,
1: no, it's more kind of an espionage movie, right?
0: And I, I would also say it's, it's up there in the pantheon, and I, I wouldn't call this an out-and-out comedy, but quote-unquote funny war movies. It's, you know, Doctor Strangelove, and then I think next on the list might be Three Kings.
1: And MASH, I'd put MASH in that category as well. Yeah, I mean, this movie's relationship with comedy and the fact that it is consistently a comedy throughout does, I think, sort of set it apart. And I, I think that's one of the things the movie does most effectively. I think it's politics. I don't know if it's politics of age particularly well, well, or maybe they seem even a little bit altruistic and schmaltzy in retrospect, but the comedic stuff still still lands pretty well for me. I mean, I watched it last night for the first time in probably at least 12 or 13 years. I, this is just, for whatever reason, not a film I revisit very often, and watching it last night, I was like, boy, I saw this movie so many times when I was in high school and college, and I haven't seen it in years.
0: Yeah, s- same here. I-, I definitely hadn't seen it in a decade, and it's a movie I watched over and over again when it first came out. Going back to, like, made for 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, I was kind of baffled while watching it about why I was so into it. Not, nothing against the film. It was just, it doesn't seem like there's anything there. I, I think, I guess you hit it on the head. It is sort of artistic enough that you felt smart for watching it and the politics were good. But I do think the politics are still pretty good. I mean, the comedy is, the comedy that's there makes it feel almost more realistic than most war movies, right? Because it feels grounded. And it also focuses on sort of the human wake of war in, in ways that almost all other war movies don't. They focus only on the heroes and what they do and so the fo- focus on the Iraqi people and the people we left behind in that war is probably the most poignant point you can make about the the first Gulf War, right? <laughs> sure, and, and sort of you know for its time, right? It, it kind of ties in with the second war before that even happened.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That that's that is interesting. I mean, this this movie comes out what? I mean, two years before nine eleven, I guess. Uh, I think this came out on October yeah October first.
0: Twenty years ago today, man that we're recording yeah.
1: this. That's how this that's how this series is supposed to work, right? Pretty robust, you know, pretty decent size budget, considering the fact that Clooney wasn't Capital M movie star yet. David O. Russell was still sort of thought of as an indie guy, a Sundance guy. So the fact that Warner Brothers put up 50 million dollars for this very experimental, artsy war film was a pretty big deal. But it ends up doing uh, 108 worldwide, which is pretty respectable, all things considered. I mean, I think I think it was at the time we felt like, yeah, that's a decent hit. Did not actually manage to get any awards traction. I don't think it was nominated for a single Oscar. It was always just a. It was left out of the cold. Just a little too esoteric for the Academy, I guess.
0: I suppose, yeah. It's just maybe didn't take things serious enough for, for a war movie, maybe too comedic. It is impressive that a, yeah, they gave David Russell this budget and B, that he able to he was able to pull off some of the action stuff and the explosions and all the set pieces as well as as he did, you know, coming off of tiny budget spanking the monkey and then flirting with disaster. So definitely put him on the map and was a calling card for him. And he, he was not very prolific in this stage of his career. What, it took him five years to make I Heart Huckabees and then another, what, five or six years to make The Fighter, right?
1: Yeah, he takes a long time between films.
0: Well, not, not recently, though.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I guess he sort of found a new gear like he's he got reinvigorated by the fighter or what comes first the fighter or no i guess silver linings playbook comes first huh
0: no the fighters before silver fighters
1: first okay yeah i mean he he hit this interesting second act prolificness fighter silver linings playbook american hustle and then joy
0: he really Uh, likes jennifer lawrence you know
1: yeah, yeah, the Jennifer Lawrence period. Yeah, the Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Christian Bale period. I mean, he really is one of those guys who manages to attract big names to his film. You know, Robert De Niro. Uh, it, it's quite interesting that a guy who has such a sort of checkered past and a, a reputation for being pretty eccentric and mercurial on set, actors really still respond to his allegedly extremely improvisational on-set style like one of the things he loves to do is he loves to light a set from above so that he can get in there with the steady cam and just let the actors improvise uh physically he likes to allow actors to explore and he wants to just follow them around he doesn't want to block things to death and so he likes to get the lights up and out of the way so that he can kind of like if you look at some of the best scenes in Silver Linings Playbook, you really have actors exploring a space in a much more organic way than you do in, in most films. And that's kind of become a little bit of his of his trademark, along with a um, macabre comic sensibility that I think was sort of established from the very beginning as Banking the Monkey, but then was sort of crystallized in this film, right? Say what you want about this movie. It has a distinct personality. It's an imperfect film, but it is 100% a David R. Russell movie, and I just feel like he re- his fingerprints are all over this thing, and it is specific to him, for better or for worse.
0: Yeah, it's a super fun watch. I mean, the actor's thing is interesting because, like you said, you have Christian Bale, Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, Mark Wahlberg does, what, two more movies with him after this?
1: And I would say this, I Heard Huckabees, and The Fighter. I'd probably put those top five Wahlberg. I mean, you add maybe Boogie Nights and, what, The Departed? And you got your five best Wahlberg performances.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I Heard Huckabees might be my favorite Wahlberg performance.
1: I agree. M- Wahlberg ends up sort of emerging I mean, he's he's really the standout in I Heart Huckabees, and again, that is my first or second favorite David O. Russell movie, even though it I think it critically it's considered amongst his worst. I I find that movie fascinating and incredibly funny, and I I went and saw that thing multiple times in the theater. That was kind of a big deal in college because again, kind of felt like you were onto something special. You
0: understood existentialism. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You watch Three
1: Kings and it makes you feel smart about Desert Storm and then you watch Iron Huckabees and yeah, it makes you feel like you understand existentialism.
0: I I mean, I still talk about the blanket. (laughs) Yes, of course.
1: And another movie with just a crazy deep roster I mean, fucking Naomi Watts is in there, Isabelle Huppert, um, Jude Law. I mean, that's that's a, that's really a wonderful movie. If you've never seen it or if you've heard that it's one of his worst, go go check it out. Do yourself a favor and check it out. It's a very unique film, but it was a notorious flop and that's why he kind of went into hiding and regrouped. And had to come back with something like The Fighter.
0: With Oscar Bate like The Fighter, yeah. And which is what he's been doing ever since. And, you know, I tend to think, you know, The Fighter, Silver Lining's Playbook, both kind of overrated a little bit, for sure, in, in my mind. And, and I think American Hustle is quite mediocre. I kind of enjoy American Hustle. It's certainly not a good movie, but it's a really interesting movie. It's almost, it's like... It's almost a parody of a of a of a crime movie, you know? Like it it it's got a bizarre feel to it that, that, that does feel very David O. Russell, but it's like it's kind of making fun of what people thought it would be a little bit. Okay. It's an interesting read. Not in an effective way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's an optimistic read on it, I suppose. I I believe in David O. Russell's talent one hundred percent, but I do feel in the last decade it really hasn't manifested itself in, in in great results, even though it's it's brought him the most acclaim and, you know, awards, love, and respect uh, than he had in his early period.
1: Yeah, truly, truly a fascinating career, and it's it's just been so so interesting to watch certain actors just become part of his repertory group to just really just to keep returning to his you know given all the things we thought about his relationship with Clooney and with Lily Tomlin and with Dustin Hoffman the fact that he then went on to become one of those directors that just inspire so much loyalty for some of the biggest movie stars out there and the fact that you know he'd be had a hand in making Jennifer Lawrence a movie star he directed her to, to an Oscar but I, you know I would say that I, I think that American Hustle and Joy are probably his two worst movies maybe in that order and, and part of me wishes he would go back to being the same kind of filmmaker he was in the late 90s and the early 2000s
0: jo- I mean I I finally watched Joy I don't know, a year and a half after it came out. Not oh, a good movie. I'm glad it it flopped a bit. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see him try something like I Heart Huckabee's or at least go back to... I, I guess he's been doing comedy, but I don't know, something, something sillier, something more high concept.
1: I was just thinking that myself. He hasn't made an action movie since Three Kings, and it's so fascinating that he has emerged as somebody who is now thought of as an actor's director, really, you know? And in in that category, if we, we could just briefly talk about the, I guess the four, God, even really the five central performances, I think this is one of Clooney's best performances. He's coming right off of the aforementioned Thin Red Line, and then he does South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Earlier in 99, he does Three Kings and, you know, apparently had to fight really hard for this role. And after this, he's just fucking off to the races. I mean, part of it is that, you know, he he finally gets off of ER and then he hooks up with the Cohen brothers and then he and Soderbergh do, you know, Ocean's Eleven and, and the rest is history. But at this point, he is really having to justify, I mean, he's, he's, he's having to fight for his own relevancy. Apparently really had to lobby hard. David O. Russell wanted... Apparently he wanted Clint Eastwood first and then he really wanted Nicolas Cage and he basically settled for Clooney.
0: I mean, maybe we've answered our own question here of, of of why all these actors are so loyal to him because he gets great performances no matter what from pretty much everyone. He gets an incredible performance from Spike Jones in this movie, right?
1: And anybody who's interested in in the films of this era or filmmakers like Spike Jones or either the Andersons or Soderbergh or David o. Russell or David Fincher I think I've just named all of them. All of those directors pop up in a book called Rebels in the Backlot by Sharon Waxman, I believe used to write for Variety. She wrote this fantastic book that I read when I was in college. I remember vividly laying on the beach in Playa del Rey down the street from Loyola Marymount University and just reading it basically all in one sitting. It's a really quick read, and each chapter focuses on one of these directors who came to prominence in the 90s. The chapter on David O. Russell deals explicitly with Three Kings and all of the back and forth and all the drama that happened between he and Clooney. And there's actually transcripts. I think there's actually like snapshots of the various letters they were sending back back and forth to each other, both before and after they had their infamous clash on set. And it was all about Clooney saying, you know, I wanted to give myself over to you. I wanted to... You know, be open to this experience. I wanted to allow you to direct the ER out of me because apparently David o. Russell was quite critical of the fact that he considered Clooney to be a television actor and he wanted to basically break him of any bad television habits. And Clooney was open to the experience, but he says, you know, you've also been, you know, you've been abusing extras, you've been abusing crew members, you've been working us crazy long hours. I don't respect the way that you've been that you've been dealing with us on set. I wanted to be open to this experience and I wanted to be present, but you're also You know, you're you're not, you're not holding up your half of the bargain, I think is what Clooney's kind of saying. So a filmmaker who's only on his third film and, and trying to deal with this huge budget and, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that was a lot of pressure, but there comes a point just like you were saying earlier where I I don't care how important the film is or how much of a genius you are, you, you have no right to disrespect or, or abuse any of your collaborators on a film set. I have no time for that. I have zero patience for that kind of thing. And I have a lot of opinions about it because I've 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 seen it happen and I've I've been on the you know, on the business end of tyrants on set and been abused on set before, both by being put in a position to where I felt like I was, you know, in danger of being physically harmed, you know, falling off a ladder or whatever, and also just getting berated by, by assholes on set. I don't care how much of a genius you are, I have, I have zero time for that. And I don't think I don't think it's a fluke. I think he is a legitimately talented guy, and obviously that's been proven in terms of how much Oscar attention he's gotten for his last few films.
0: It's basically the plot of uh, Whiplash.
1: <laughs> yes, fair enough. Yeah, good point. But in just working through the cast, okay, he and Wahlberg seem to really have a connection. They seem to really understand each other. There's no stories about he and Wahlberg getting into fights on set, right?
0: Wahlberg is kind of a weirdly militaristic guy, right? Waking up at three in the morning and doing his like, he, he's he's kind of a psycho too so it makes sense.
1: It's interesting how you know, even though Clooney's the star and I think he's excellent in the film, the movie does seem a little bit more interested in Wahlberg's character, right? He kind of emerges as the central figure of the film.
0: I feel like he has more screen time than Clooney.
1: And he gets captured and he gets tortured by the great Saeed uh, Tag- Tagmui, I think is how you pronounce his name who is just coming off of Lahane Uh, hate with Vincent Cassell, right? The Matthew Kasavitz movie. And I think that's that's the role that got him this role. He's exceptional. And I mean, one of the centerpiece scenes of the film is Saeed Tagmui torturing Wahlberg and them sort of coming to a connection about the fact that they're both fathers or that Wahlberg's a father and Saeed used to be a father because his son was killed. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary sequence. And then there's Ice Cube who is just so good in this movie. <laughs> He's so charming in this film and so funny and so present.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting they didn't, you know, he hasn't had more roles in sort of prestige movies or whatever and I don't know what the reason for that is I have to believe that he just sort of wanted different things, and he had his, you know, he's, he's got a lot of other stuff going on.
1: Now he's a diversified, you know, mogul, I suppose. You know, he's subtle, he's funny, he's he's dignified, he's a great physical actor, he's got all, all the tools, and when I just, when I think of Ice Cube bringing down a helicopter by throwing a Nerf football rigged with C4, <laughs> it's just, it's just one of the great, it's just one of the endearing <laughs> movie moments of the 1990s for me. I mean, it's just, it's it's perfect. It's been perfectly set up when they're out in the back of the truck, <laughs> And they're all firing at these Nerf balls. Spike Jones comments on the, you know, blacks make better receivers than quarterbacks, right? And Wahlberg's trying to defuse it. We can all agree there are many excellent black quarterbacks all right. <laughs> It's just it's just set up so beautifully, and in, and it's it's really the, the sort of like the defining action moment of of the film when he when he throws this nerf ball at a helicopter. It's it's extraordinarily well done. And then yeah, it's Spike Jones. I mean, it feels like stunt casting in retrospect. And apparently, David Russell had to fight really hard to convince Warner Brothers to let him cast his buddy in this role.
0: And it's it's weird that Spike hasn't done really any acting since then.
1: Wolf of Wall Street, he's quite good. Yeah, in.
0: that's right. He's great in Wolf of Wall Street.
1: Moneyball, he's quite good in for one scene. That's
0: right. Yeah, I guess he, he is sort of a down. specialist. Yeah, I, I, I guess I wish I he'd do more. Like he, he can he can be on screen for for more than one scene in movies.
1: Oh, he's also he's in the game as well. He's got a cameo in the game. He's one of the paramedics at the end of the game. He's he okay. must be
0: just the most likable guy. He's friends with all the big filmmakers, you know.
1: Exactly, and then the, and this is going to be his year because being John Malkovich is going to come out two months later, right? So ninety nine is a pivotal year for Spike Jones.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a little tidbit in Wikipedia that says uh, Spike was practicing with uh, his accent southern accent with David Russell over the phone while shooting Being John Malkovich
1: okay so he shot Being John Malkovich first and then he went and did Three Kings okay that makes sense yeah I don't know I mean I I watched this film last night I enjoyed it I do think it has it shows its age a little bit I, I do think a lot of the sort of experimental ambitiousness of it in terms of its look and in terms of its editing style hasn't aged particularly well it does feel a little bit like a guy who's trying to throw a few too Many things at the wall, and not all of them are sticking. Yeah. It's a. Scruffy film, let's say. Yeah, it's a,
0: it's a scruffy, gritty little film. It's it's certainly enjoyable. It, it never lags. The performances are great. Pretty darn funny at times. The stylized stuff is pretty cool. I, I still like the bullet in the guts thing that they do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's certainly not a great movie, and it's not as good as my 15 year old self remembers it. A couple
1: of very on the nose needle drops that I could probably do without.
0: But like you said, I kind of wish David Russell would go back to something uh, more similar to this than, like, I said the Oscar bait that he's been cranking out lately.
1: When you look back at these two movies, which came out 20 years ago this week, do they say anything specific to you about 99? Do they they reflect 99 in any sort of meaningful way? Are are they more interesting and reflective of the filmmakers responsible for them? Is there something instructive about when they came out? Or is it more interesting to look at where they landed in the oeuvre of the filmmakers responsible?
0: It's the... You know, 90s indie filmmakers moving up the totem pole, right? Climbing the ladder and and going from small budget to medium-sized budget on their way to bigger and better things down the line, right? So it sort of showcases the transitional period. And, you know, this is... The the Andersons were ascending and David Fincher was ascending. So, yeah, you know, sort of the indie darlings uh, growing up period. And, you know, these are definitely two big hallmark films for, for these two filmmakers that would go on to... Really big things very soon after. So I don't know if it says anything in particular about uh, the films of the time or the filmmaking at the time. Yeah, I, I guess it's sort of signpost for those '90s indie people. What do, what do you think?
1: To me, these don't necessarily feel like '90s staples. You know, like they—I don't think they're as reflexive as you know something like The Matrix, for example, or even American Pie. i, I but I think they are significant because I do—they—they they are the two best films from two of the most important filmmakers to come of age during this era. And in that regard, they're always going to be very, very important to me. And The Limey is just always going to be one of those movies. It's just always going to be one of my most revisited films because it is so breezy at 89 minutes, and yet I I just always find it to be so moving. I mean, it's a truly a true goosebump movie for me for a number of reasons. And it's, you know, Soderbergh really understanding how to invoke memory but also really understanding how to use Cliff Martinez to, you know, to his best effect. It's him understanding how to really put his stamp on someone else's intellectual property, you know, it's him really developing as an interpretive artist. And, you know, certain screenwriters like Lem Dobbs maybe may, may have mixed feelings about that, but does, but even if Soderbergh is not necessarily an auteur by definition. He is always going to be somebody who has a very specific take on the material. And that's one of the, I think, the the defining qualities of him as a stylist.
0: This has been a really fun podcast, man. These are two movies I was really looking forward to. And I feel like the Limey is still a bit undiscovered even now, if, if nothing else, if this makes a handful of people watch the Limey for the first time, it's, it's all been worth it.
1: If someone's only real context for Steven Soderbergh is, you know, the ocean's 11 trilogy or Aaron Brockovich, or even some of the recent stuff he's done with, with Netflix, go back to the Limey. It, it's worth seeking out because I think, it, I think it's incredibly unique. And as a, as a daylight noir exercise. It wears a lot of its references on its sleeve, but has quietly also been very, very influential over the last 20 years.
0: All right, Matt, let's uh, let's close up shop here.
1: You mentioned a guy named uh, David Fincher a few minutes ago, so it would seem apropos that we would segue. Our next episode in two weeks is going to deal with A big one.
0: It is a big one.
1: Kind of interesting that we're going to get Joker next week, which will end up being one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial films of this year. And 20 years ago, I'd say Fight Club would have been right at the top of the list for the film that inspired the most discussion, consternation and op-eds during that year, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, that and South Park, I suppose. Sure. (laughs) Um, And Fight Club, Fight Club was definitely my number one most anticipated movie of 1999 when I was in it. Could not wait for it. Read the book, was upset, you know, loved David Fincher already. So this will be exciting. And especially because I haven't rewatched this movie in probably 10 years after seeing it 20, 30, 40 times in the first few years it came out.
1: And we're in a real Fincher drought lately for a number of reasons. I mean, I had I haven't actually watched Mindhunter. I, I probably should to get my fix. But in terms of his, uh, his cinematic output, his feature output, we haven't got anything since Gone Girl, right? Five years ago?
0: Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. So
1: So I'm, I'm thirsty.
0: I as well. So you can look forward to that next time. For today, that is all. This has been We Like Movies, Retrospectating 1999, The Limey, and Three Kings. Say goodbye, Matt.
1: Adios.